Welcome to Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, the podcast that deals with all things mental health. We talk to professionals, survivors, and loved ones about their sometimes informative, sometimes uplifting, and sometimes tragic stories. I'm your host of the show, Todd Rennebaum, advocate, recovering addict, experienced sufferer of depression and anxiety, and author of the children's book, Sometimes Daddy Cries. Hello, all you bunny huggers out there. I am Todd Rennebaum, and you're listening to Bunny Hugs and Mental Health on the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. You can go to saskpodcastnetwork.com and find all types of great Saskatchewan-made podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for everyone that's been listening for a long time. Thank you if this is your first time listening. I've got quite a few new listeners lately, and I just want to just thank everyone for for listening. Uh, and, and, And if you could do me a favor, you know, tell someone about the podcast, you know, Word of mouth would do wonders for for the podcast. I, I believe in it. I, I think uh, a lot of people are vulnerable and and open, and you know they they tell their story to help others, and so that others can relate, and you know, so they don't feel alone. So please tell people about the podcast. Now, before I I introduce my my guest this week. I, I want to give a little update of some shows that are coming up. So over the next few weeks, I've got some really great guests. Uh, next week, it's Megan, and she is an actress in Saskatoon. She suffers from psychosis. Uh, I talked to a young guy named Teague and his parents. Teague has autism, and they talk about the different mental health issues that Teague has and also some of the stresses and you know mental health issues that the parents have to deal with uh, raising someone with autism. Uh, after that, I talked to Zach Williams, that is Robin Williams' oldest son, and we talk about addiction. And there's also a Jessica. She grew up with a mother that has bipolar and schizoaffective disorder, I believe. And uh, yeah, she was kind of in and out of foster care and, and whatnot, so she's going to talk about that. But this week, I am talking with Mark Ferrant. Now, who is Mark Ferrant? Well, he is a really interesting guy. He was sitting on a jury in Ontario, uh, and it was for a murder case, and he ended up getting uh, severe PTSD from being on that jury, from seeing all the graphic uh, images and hearing nothing but murder stuff. For he, he was on the jury for four months. Uh, now... I, I booked the interview to talk to him. In the meantime, I ended up getting a summons for uh, jury selection. I, I talked to, to Mark about it, but between recording that and now playing that interview, I actually got selected for jury duty and I sat on a jury and I could see uh, I could see how you know some PTSD could could definitely uh, happen. Uh, mine, my case wasn't extremely graphic or anything. It was only for a few days, but still, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a pretty awesome responsibility. And you know, you hear lots of things. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. Uh, Mark has done all types of advocating. Uh, he's helped create all types of programs. And now, if you sit on a jury, you have free counseling after your trial, and and it's all because of Mark. And uh, I, I won't get too too into it i'll let mark talk about it 
Uh, so without further ado, I give you Mark Ferrant. I was a, a, a juror on a graphic first degree murder trial, also with an, uh, an NCR defense attached to it, which is the not criminally responsible defense, ah. um, which um, complica- is a complicated legal structure unto itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I'm an ordinary citizen. I, I've never really stepped in a courthouse before uh, in my life. Um, was always very interested in the jury system. Um, so when I received my summons, uh, I was, you know, to, of two minds. I was trepidatious because I was in a new job, a, a very high profile, stressful position uh, for a large corporation. Um, I had a young family. I was expecting, uh, we were expecting our second child. And at this, and then the other side with me was the, you know, it was, you know, interested in this. Um, but I was sort of leaning towards, um, you know, hoping I would be excused. And, and of course, it, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I was selected. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, I think, um, the reality of the justice system and the, and the trial itself can hit you pretty quickly. So I, um, you know, w- within the first week, it's not like all kidding aside, but the, the gravity of the trial hit, hit all of us, I think on the jury pretty quickly because, you know, witnesses were, were crying on the stand almost immediately, mm-hmm. you know, a, a 20 year, I think even more than that, a 30 year uh, fire captain broke down on the stand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of immediately everyone sort of took <laughs> sort of a, uh, a virtual step back and realized that this wasn't an ordinary case. And it was a very, it was a very complicated case. It involved, you know, the murder of uh, a young woman, 23 years old by her on again, off again, boyfriend sharing a, they lived in a, in a rooming house, uh, sort of a large apartment style building. And, and of course the plea was, it was not criminally responsible because, because of a, a mental disorder, you see some things on a, on a jury that you you couldn't even uh, imagine. Um, even if you're one who is you know uh, reads a lot of true crime or or watches a lot of graphic uh, content, it's different when it's real. I think it's it's very different when when it's it, you're dealing with an actual person whose life has been taken away and not just taken away but taken away savagely that changes everything and the number of actors involved in the in the case as well and and the the subject matter and and the like so so i it, it was a 4 month trial which is is unusually wow. long and there were some breaks in between, but largely it was it was quite a lengthy trial. And you know, jury duty, you know, it's um, you know there are days where you're going through procedural issues, but potentially um, in court, and then suddenly you're back at the really terrible stuff again. Mm. But after the verdict was delivered, I left the courtroom a little shell shocked. Um, uh, expecting there to be 
you know, somebody who works in, in processes and somebody who works in, in, you know, the corporate world, expecting this very well-oiled machine to be there in, in the justice system. And there really, it wasn't there or wasn't what I was expecting it to be. Um, it's, it's probably well-oiled, but well-oiled in, in it to, to serve its own purpose, not necessarily <laughs> to serve the, the public, so to speak. And that's not overly true, but I just wasn't <laughs> expecting there to be the gaps in the system at the time. And I was expecting a very formal, you know, very rigid dismissal process. And, you know, here's what the next steps are and, and the like, and it just wasn't there. It was just pick up your suitcase and, and out you go. Hmm. Um, that's not, uh, we had, we had a cup of tea with the, with the judge. He, he very kindly came into the, to the room. Um, and, and actually he was a, he was a, a great justice, but we left the courthouse and, and, it wasn't clear to me what was happening to me over, over time after that experience. I, I realized that uh, I wasn't the, the, the event was not over. And in fact, I seemed to be reliving it constantly. And it was almost like it hadn't stopped. And so I, you know, I immediately, I was working all the way through the trial. It wasn't like I had a break. I was actually going back to the office every single day after wow. the case was over and working through the night um, and working with my staff during the day, my, the people on my team, direct reports and the like, my boss, uh, my boss's boss, <laughs> everybody. <laughs> um, and then, so I immediately just went back to work um, and it just wasn't the same. And it wasn't, you know, I started to, um, I was just, you know, closing a lot of doors, um, literally, you know, shutting people out hoping this would go away, not even really being able to define what it was and just it just getting worse and worse and worse. And, and, you know, uh, uh, until finally family said, you know, you need to do something about this. Um, and realizing that, that they were right. Um, something was, was wrong. And that's when, that's when I realized and, and, um, in Ontario at the time that there were no counseling supports for jurors through the court system if they hadn't been issued by the judge in the case that you sat on. Mm. So the first place I called and um, my, my wife called was the, was the courthouse thinking they would have resources right. and, you know, no one called back and there were a number of calls going in. And finally, someone said, yeah, you know, and there really just isn't anything there because, you know, we just, well, we just don't have anything. And that's when, you know, through investigation, um, this policy reared its head. And, you know, that's when you're sort of at the mercy then of the, of the public system, so to speak. Yeah. And we, I think every, everybody would know that accessing mental health um, care and support at the best of times is really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, there's, uh, you know, there's emergency um, scenarios, mm -hmm. obviously, where, where you enter the system quite rapidly. But if you're not in an emergency, so to speak, mm -hmm. you may be, <laughs> but you're not, you're not <laughs> exhibiting self-harm. You're not, you're not a harm, harmful to somebody else. So, 
accessing it at that point is is can be really difficult. It could be months and even a year until you actually are sitting down with somebody. Right. The other difficult piece was that I was a juror. And so the, the issues that I was dealing with were akin to the experience that I had. And the jury secrecy rule suddenly reveals itself and doors started to close. Uh, literally, my family doctor had a, had a list of, of you know, psychologists and psychiatrists that, that we, could, we could call. And going down that list, many of them just said, whoa, you're a juror. I, we, we can't have this conversation. It's illegal for us to talk. And that was, it, that was very revealing and very, um, you know, at that point I was getting quite angry because I, I just thought this is my civic duty. I've gone through this, this experience. Yeah. Um, and you're telling me that there's nothing for me on the other side, having gone through this. Yeah. Were you, were you surprised there was no supports through the judicial system? I was very shocked. I was, mm. I was shocked. And I started to do some, you know, uh, my background is in research and business insights. So I started to do some research and just, were there other provinces that had uh, exceptions to this? What was it like in other countries? And, and I'd sort of, it was you know, horrifying to sort of <laughs> reveal that it was bad everywhere. Um, it, you know, there was a, there were, um, uh, Australia actually seemed to have uh, solved this and was, and was um, in one particular state was providing counseling services to, to jurors, but really it didn't seem like anyone was doing this properly, mm. but certainly in Canada at the time, um, yeah. there wasn't any, there weren't any um, uh, immediate supports available. And then while I was, while I was researching some of this, uh, a pilot program sort of popped up in Alberta miraculously, but yeah, I was, I was very shocked. So when you said the, you, you could get some, if it was signed off by the judge, was that like no longer an option for you once you were off the jury or. So if the judge is, so you're, you know, the trial had concluded, um, mm -hmm. the verdict had been delivered and, and, um, and that was, that was the, the end of my jury service. So mm -hmm. the judge would have had to have issued counseling in that, in the courtroom and made it available to the, to the jury. That was the, the mm, policy gotcha. at, at the time. And that policy actually went all the way back to the Paul Bernardo trial. Mm. And so uh, and many of your listeners would probably be familiar with, with that case in, in Canada, mm -hmm. um, certainly. So the justice, um, Patrick Lesage, who was the presiding judge in, in that trial, and then later became the, the, the chief justice of, uh, in Ontario, there was nothing in, in place at that time. And it, all it, it was obvious that the jury were experiencing um, trauma um, because of the subject matter, because of, because of the, the, the experience. I think mm -hmm. the entire nation was traumatized by that experience. And so yeah. it was even more devastating for the jury and the justice himself was feeling it. And he's been quite vocal about, about his own experiences with mental health and as a result of that case. Hmm. So he, um, he arranged counseling for um, the jury and, and uh, my understanding is almost all of them used it. Um, and then that policy became 
that became a policy, but it was a judicial order. So the 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 problem with that, which we've we've talked about broadly since then, is that the jury are silent. Mm. And so if the jury are aren't exhibiting acute symptoms, i.e., crying in real physical distress in in the courtroom, mm-hmm. it's it's not obvious that they're going to be that that they're experiencing trauma and that they're they're there that could lead to you know significant ill mental health because again because the jury is are silent and passive mm-hmm. there's they're not communicating they're not allowed to speak uh unless in certain circumstances so how can a justice know that they need to to sort of uh trigger that policy mm-hmm. right it, it's very difficult and and justices and and crown and 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 the other actors in the courtroom become sort of desensitized to the evidence over their career it, that's probably you know a, a good thing in some ways um <laughs> <laughs> uh but they'll tell you you know yeah there are cases that that stay with them and and so there's a sense of de- desensitization but you don't the, again you don't it's it's so different when you're there in the material, yeah. Um, and you're again, you're talking about the public who it's not a vocation. You don't yeah. train to become a juror. The, the the role is is exactly that. You're supposed to come into court um, with as a jury of your peers with no preconceived um, bias or or notion about this case. Right. So. When you get selected, do they warn you at all prehand that this could be a really graphic, traumatizing? Very rarely. Yeah. Okay. Very rarely. And that's- I, I ask because I I set up this interview with you, and not a week later I got a summons. Oh wow. Um, for like I'm not selected yet, but I'm gonna be. Yep. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I was like, oh shit. <laughs> now I'm really curious, but. Well, ju- listen, you know, jury duty is, um, is for many a very rewarding experience. Mm-hmm. It, it is because you're, you are delivering, you are participating in the, 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 the last remaining mandatory civic duty left in our society. Right. You are, you are, a, a, an active, um, participant and voice in the justice system. And for many coming through that, um, Many would say, yes, it actually was very interesting and it was very rewarding. Um, that's the, that's the, the experience we want to have. And, and, and especially even if, if, it, was, if it was difficult, mm-hmm. we now have more resources for jurors at the other end of the system, partly because of my experience and, and, and others connected to, to the work that we do. Mm-hmm. But they typically don't warn you. They typically don't because, again, they don't want you to form an opinion. But in right. some cases, oh, they, yeah. they will. They'll say, they'll say, you know, this one, there may be some difficult images, and that's about it. Huh. Do they say that in the selection, like when they're going to select the jury? They're like, are, do you, are you susceptible to, you know, getting traumatized by graphic things? Well, so... 
Um, and again, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a legal expert. I'm an a, I'm an advocate. Um, yeah. So what I can what I can tell you from what I understand and what experiences um, I've heard from others and my own experience in the case that I was on. Typically, at the beginning of the trial, um, the justice will. Um, so you're in a usually you're in a, in the courtroom with a, a number of people who've been um, summoned for that day. Could be anywhere from a hundred to three hundred people, and you have an opportunity then to be excused from the trial with a valid reason. And right. um, so if you have if you are diagnosed with uh, with men, uh, mental illness or or um, suffer from any uh, anxiety, acute anxiety, you have the opportunity to discuss that with the judge um, and, and be excused. Mm. If you are experiencing, would be experiencing undue financial distress from being in this trial, mm-hmm. loss of wages, uh, income and the like, you would be excused. If you've booked a trip that you cannot be refunded from, that's an opportunity, but all these things have to be um, documented. So you, you would have to show evidence that you are going to be away. The trip has been booked and right. you would be experience, you would experience financial distress, um, from, from canceling that trip. Right. Um, and so, you know, yes. Uh, and then I think, um, also if you've been a victim of crime in the past, um, if you've been a accused of a crime in the past or convicted of a crime in the past that has to be disclosed and that's generally how you're excused mm. I, I, you know there are you know, child care concerns that could be brought up as well there's a number of of um of of options and and you know rightly so because you know we don't want to put an undue burden on on people despite this being your civic duty it's it's not your duty to be um, dramatically encumbered by the experience. Right. And I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to being part of this, um, jury selection thing. Cause you know, I'm, I'm curious and I, I like, I don't know. I like a good adventure. <laughs> so I honestly, I, I kind of hope I get picked, but I hope it's, if I do get picked, it's not some, you know, disturbing murder scenes that I have to stare at for four months which I don't know what the odds are of that, but. Well, you, you, I mean, that's just it. Um, And so, uh, you know, we don't choose the trial that we sit on. Um, We don't, we we don't choose the evidence that, that is presented to us where jurors are judges of the facts as they are presented to us. We're not responsible for the facts. We didn't Mm -hmm. collect them. We didn't assign value to them in, in, in the terms of, what is presented in court, we, we take those, those, that evidence, those facts under direction from the justice who walks us through the law. And it's up to the jury then to decide the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess we'll see what happens. You will. Yeah. <laughs> um, so after the trial, how, how did you get treatment or, or what, what did treatment look like for you once you finally found it? I, I eventually, um, through essentially cold calling, uh, uh, found a 
uh, clinic that specialized in PTSD. Um, I think we were all convinced that that's what I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so this was a clinic that actually worked with military veterans um, first responders primarily. Mm. And so, um, th- th- I was, I was comfortable being there. I, I, you know, init- I think initially, uh, bumped around a little bit, but I, 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 um, settled with the right, uh, clinician and, um, and engaged in cognitive behavioral therapy. Gotcha. Um, and, um, uh, there were sort of two streams going on at the time because I was working through CBT, but I was also on the other side, very angry and motivated to do something about the system that had shut the door or not even shut the door. There just wasn't anything there for me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, and that's when I started to uh, investigate as best as I could to evidence of this happening to other jurors and heaps of evidence in the U S of this happening, uh, because, you know, our systems, although we're a common law cousins, mm-hmm. we're very different because mm-hmm. in, in the U S as a juror in most States, you know, I can stand on the steps of the courthouse and tell you exactly what I was feeling and how we reached a decision in that case and, and get a book deal. <laughs> or, or, or appear on the today show or, or you know or whatever it is you know jurors the system there is is open it's open democracy and it's open um the justice system is much more transparent mm-hmm. here it's not and, and in actually in most sort of uh commonwealth countries that that uh from the the british uh roots in in british commonwealth law we're very similar. So the jury are silent. They are anonymous. The media are not allowed to identify them or approach them. And you remain anonymous um, uh, throughout the experience. And so the case, the number of cases of jurors actually coming forward and really by that meaning coming forward to the media were a handful Hmm. And so I started to go through those. Some of them were deceased and no longer with us and very difficult to find. Um, but I managed to, to contact a few of them and, and talked about my experience, which was exactly similar to theirs. And then I realized then that, okay, this isn't just my problem. Cause that was, you know, that's, the the illness talking to you as well to depression anxiety ptsd the illness in some ways is your worst enemy because it lies to you it tells you that um you're not this is your fault and it tells you that this is you know you're weak and it tells you that you've um that you're to blame for this right you're you're alone no one else is like this and that's the stigma of mental illness as well so the self stigma and society's stigma so you don't want to talk about it you don't want to yeah. tell anybody about it you want to yeah. wear that mask and so i was at the time writing letters to attorney generals across the country particularly in ontario um 
uh, and trying to get a meeting or get the attention to discuss this because I felt there was something wrong there. And I started to talk to people in the legal community of friends who were lawyers. And I started, you know, for the first time telling them about this, telling, you know, it's, it's, you know, this, again, that stigma, you know, you're coming out essentially to tell them, you know, Hey, I, I'm diagnosed with PTSD and that has a whole, whole label to it at the time. I think we've gotten a lot better about it now. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, suddenly you're, once you identify yourself as somebody with, you know, experiencing ill mental health or with a, with a diagnosis, with a label, with stigma, everything changes. Yeah. yeah um, right. right? Yeah. Um, even amongst close friends, it changes immediately. It's, it's so, um, but a lot of people just said, I'd never thought about this before in the legal community, but you're absolutely right. I'd never, I never would have thought about that, but you're absolutely right. And you can't be the only person. Yeah. And so I started to go, I, I would never really been on social media. I kind of just wasn't, it wasn't my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, went out on social media and, and slowly people started to contact me. And then finally, just because, you know, I was getting nowhere with, uh, with the letter writing campaign, I, I had to weigh the options of, of what's the next step. And the next step really was going public. And what did that look like? And what yeah. was that going, what was that going to do? Yeah. We're going to get in trouble. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, you know, absolutely. What's What does that mean to my job? What does that mean to my family? What does that mean to me personally? And I kind of weighed all the options and, and said that this was the, this was the right thing to do. I actually, you know, I wrote a letter. Uh, the, I thought the one person and a friend agreed, the one person who probably would know most about what you're talking about was, was Justice Lesage himself. Hmm. So that was a letter I wrote to, to the justice and he responded very quickly. Uh, and we had a great conversation, uh, two hour conversation. Uh, and he gave me basically the, the energy to, to move forward with this project, hmm. um, <laughs> project, but it became a project, but move <laughs> forward with, move forward with, the, with the, the, the advocacy mission. And then suddenly you know, just, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I went, I went public, I went public on CBC, the national, which is just about as public as you can go. <laughs> so, um, but immediately I got emails from, from a lot of jurors, a lot of people who'd been through this and, and agreed. Yeah. Um, and, and it sort of went from there. And then, is that kind of what inspired you to start the Canadian Juries Commission? So the mission, I guess, it, it really at the, that point we were, we, uh, so Ontario introduced, uh, you know, after, after going public, the Ontario very quickly introduced um, counseling, uh, a juror support program in Ontario for, uh, for jurors um, oh, offering nice. for, offering four uh, counseling sessions initially, and then another four if required, and a a toll-free access line 
And then I began to write to other provinces and Saskatchewan responded, Columbia uh, responded after that and put in similar programs. Um, but we really, you know, felt that we need, there needed to be a national standard for this mm-hmm. and that the federal government did have a responsibility to, to set a, a national set of guidelines that all the provinces should, should uh, meet. And that was posing, that posted, you know, that was challenge, pardon me, challenging at the time. Um, the attorney general at the time, you know, it just, it, it wasn't, um, it just wasn't on the, I guess, on the agenda. Um, and so the Commons Justice Committee did uh, take up a, a study. So um, a campaign went to Ottawa. We took what was called the 12 angry letters to to <laughs> Ottawa, which was um, letters from jurors in, in high profile cases, um, the Tim Bosma trial, um, the, the Tory Stafford trial, um, the Paul Bernardo trial, um, the Jennifer Pan case, um, and uh, other cases that were equally um, traumatic that, that uh, you may have never heard of, but were deeply, uh, deeply uh, affecting. Mm-hmm. And that went, that circulated throughout the House of Commons um, and the Senate and the, um, the Justice Committee, the uh, New Democrats actually put a motion forward to study jury duty mental health. And it was approved unanimously by the committee and the committee after a year long study, I, I appeared uh, as a witness at the initial sessions of that, uh, that study, produced a report with 11 recommendations and the jury's commission was really born from that report. I see. So, so those 11 recommendations, which sadly weren't really being uptaken by the provinces. Um, and so this, the report was, was, uh, was tabled. Um, we got a lot of media attention from that report. Um, and it's, it's still really a, um, a, an excellent guideline um, for you know, number of uh, nations have looked at it too, not just hmm. not just Canada. Um, but those those recommendations, just nobody was really picking up on them. So we decided, I decided to form this organization to to actually, you know, bring life to those prog- those recommendations through programs. And that was the that was the the birth of the Canadian Juries Commission. Now, so what is the commission? do now exactly like do you have to fundraise and then you help uh jurors that aren't getting the support they need from their provinces or well we modeled ourselves after the mental health commission of canada which is um was created under um uh the stephen harper government and so the mental health commission of canada is, is essentially a um government uh, funded organization with a federal mandate um, to be a catalyst um, and solutions provider to the provinces and um, the healthcare sector for mental health. And so they sort of sit between the federal government and the provinces. And we said, well, we could do that exact same role for jury duty. Mm. So we could take, we could build programs and solutions that the provinces could use free of charge, so to speak, through federal funding. 
Gotcha. So let's create this program and, and bring it to the provinces and, and show its effectiveness and, and provide it to them and also to the private sector and the public directly. So that's, that's our mandate. And that's why we were um, very fortunate to have been um, brought to the, the uh, Standing Committee of Finance in February of 2020 mm-hmm. and then presented our vision for, for a 10-year mandate, uh, which was a, unanimously approved by, by the Finance Committee and entered into their, into their report. However, uh, as we all know, the pandemic happened and mm-hmm. everything changed. Oh, okay. So we, we have been very fortunate, though, um, to have received funding through uh, the Department of Justice directly in Ottawa to, uh, to launch a three-year pilot program in British Columbia. So we are, um, it was announced just uh, in August uh, with uh, after meeting David Lametti, the, the the Attorney General, um, to uh, provide us with three years of funding to produce two programs um, in BC as part of our pilot. One is um, training for sheriffs officers in British Columbia who manage the jury on a day to day basis in court right. to provide them with mental health first aid self-care and resiliency training that they would impart on the jury. So after a really difficult day in court, the sheriff would be able to say, Hey, I, I, obviously this has been a very difficult day. Here's what I want you to do tonight. I want you to do this, this, and this when you go home and apply that self-care and the, and that programming so that the jury can come back in the next day and continue their work. Hmm. And so it's, it's, it's a triage that, that, that will be there to support you in those moments. And it's something that could be said to everybody. It could be said to an individual who's, who's showing distress. Um, and then obviously at the end of a trial, a more formal debrief so that you, when you leave, you've got a, li- a little bit more there. To help you, and and if you need more, then the system is there to help you as well through BC's jury support program, and the other program that we're producing, which is a peer support network. Hmm. And so that's um, a network of former jurors who will have received peer support training through the Canadian Mental Health Association and Peer Support Canada, and one of our other um, uh, providers. Uh, we'll go through that training to become trained supporters to be able to help other jurors at any point in their life mm-hmm. when they need it. Because many people have said, you know, I, I just, I wanted to talk to somebody, but I didn't want to talk to a counselor. I just wanted to talk to somebody who'd been through it, you know, who understood. And so we believe, you know, just uh, that model um, peer support, was actually developed and, and, was brought forward by the Mental Health Commission of Canada as one of its founding uh, recommendations back to to Parliament and, and to government, hmm. um, for particularly for military um, first responders and um, uh, and frontline workers hmm. uh, 
because of the suicide epidemic and PTSD epidemic in that profession. Well, it works for addictions. I mean, that's basically what 12 step groups are. So that's right. So yeah, that was a question I had for you because I know I, I couldn't find a, a re- I, I don't know how hard I looked, I guess, maybe, but a recent article about the funding you were getting because the article I did find was it was going to be $20 million over 10 years, but you're saying because of COVID that got uh, shelved. And so now you got enough for a three-year uh, program in BC. Basically what that's right. Yeah, okay. that's it. Gotcha. So, okay. so, I mean, the, the, as you know, the budget, the 2020 budget didn't happen yeah, because of yeah. the pandemic. Right. And so we, as an organization, I mean, we, many, uh, you know, we reappeared at the standing committee on finance, the emergency standing committee on finance uh, mm-hmm. um, during COVID really to talk about the fact that, you know, jury duty is probably more under threat now than ever because of the pandemic, because individuals are going to be more resistant to responding to a summons for very real reasons, because of uh, concerns about their employment, mm-hmm. maintaining the job they have, if they have one, if so many people have lost their, lost their jobs or have seen reduction in hours, they're going to be worried about expenses. Um, they're probably dealing with increased levels of debt and insolvency. Um, and they're worried about their health. They're worried about COVID and they're worried about um, being in a a crowd and being in a crowd. And and the the courts have done an amazing job of ensuring social distancing and putting in a lot of measures in place to ensure, you know, you know, jury selection is happening in, in Alberta, for example, at the, at the stampede grounds. Yeah. It's not happening in a little courtroom anymore. Yeah, and even when the juries, to, uh, even when courts are in session, now they're in very big spaces. I, I spoke to someone recently in BC. The trial took place in an old theater, right? Um, and so, but still, the virus is the virus. And we released um, our second opinion study, actually, just recently um, on Monday, that showed that jury duty um, across Canada is still. Uh, support is still low, um, well below donating blood or volunteering for a community organization. Hmm. So that's concerning. Yeah. And the driving factors were ensuring that salaries and wages are maintained, driving factors for willingness to participate, mm-hmm. followed by um, COVID-19 vaccinations being mandatory for jurors. Hmm. And the third one was um, jury pay um, replacing lost wages and salaries. Yeah. That's been a big piece of our mandate, which has been, um, you know, this has evolved. The, the Juries Commission was founded in mental health, and that's, that's a core pillar of our organization. But we're, we're much more about improving some of the, the fundamental concerns for jury duty, which is jury pay does just is not income replacement. Yeah. It can't be, it, it's, jury pay is not an honorarium anymore. Uh, it has to be seen as income replacement and it's not. Well, if I do, if I do get ch- chosen to be on a jury, I, luckily I don't make that much. So <laughs> it pretty much covers what I would be making. But. Well, so Saskatchewan <laughs> has increased. So Saskatchewan has done a fantastic job. Saskatchewan has increased jury pay. It's one of the few provinces 
during my time as a as an as an advocate, and I I, I can't take credit for for that a particular uh, change, but I certainly did write to them about it. Um, it's one hundred ten dollars a day. That's right. Yeah, and and where before it was, I believe thirty. Oh, oh my god! Right. Yeah, and no, that, so that would have covered my gas. <laughs> well, yeah, not in my car. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, I mean, in downtown Toronto or even Calgary, um, Vancouver, in in Saskatoon, I imagine, you know, parking your car downtown for a full day is twenty to thirty dollars a day. Yeah, near near the municipal uh, uh, courthouse, yeah, and right. if you're on if you're on a lengthy trial, that adds up, yeah. and that's out of your pocket. And in many provinces, that's not reimbursed. So in Ontario, you're not even paid for the first ten days of trial, and then it's only forty dollars a day. Really? If, yeah, for the for the first hundred days of the trial, then it rises to a hundred dollars a day, oh. but. God. But even but even then, a hundred dollars a day, in every province but one in this country, an employer is not mandated to maintain your salary legally. Huh. Only only in Newfoundland and Labrador is uh, uh, our employers. There's no jury pay in in that province. Oh, um, but the employer must maintain your salary. So you get your full wage. You get your full wage and your salary and, and benefits are, are not uh, uh, discontinued. Huh. Um, everywhere else, it's, it's, um, it's really at the discretion of the employer. So many large corporations have put those contingencies in place, but that's the exception. They're for small and medium-sized businesses. Mm-hmm. They're not obligated to do it. Yeah. And so if we're talking about improving um, diversity in the justice system and combating systemic racism in the justice system, raising jury pay it suddenly does an enormous service to the public because it allows people who work in retail, who work in tenuous employment in the gig economy, which are overrepresented by BIPOC um, uh, Canadians, to attend court. And suddenly the complexion of the jury duty, so to speak, changes overnight. If, if you know, fact is a fact, if, we, if we're concerned about all white juries, yeah. suddenly raising jury pay does an enormous service almost immediately, removing that financial barrier. Mm-hmm. So really, you're doing kind of two things. You're advocating for mental health for juries, but also to improve the jury system really, or improve the jury. I, I don't want to say quality, but the jury, uh, what am I trying to say here? <laughs> well, it, it, we're, 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 these, these, these barriers and, and these processes have existed for decades. Yeah. Jury pay in Ontario is exactly the same as it was in 1995 during the Paul Bernardo trial 26 years ago. Yeah. That's, um, that's mind boggling. It, it, it's just, it's just, Absolutely mind-boggling. And, and Tina Danzer, uh, who is juror number one on the Bernardo trial, is my colleague uh, at the commission, uh, has been there with me right from the start. Um, our commission is made up of, of both former jurors, um, also uh, psychologists and psychiatrists, um, litigators, 
um, other activists. Uh, we have uh, two uh, very uh, uh, excellent uh, and strong representatives from the indigenous community, one from the Indigenous Bar Association. We've built this program and, and our mandate in cooperation with so many stakeholders to make the justice system better because it, you know it can't it can't continue operating like it's 1995. Mm -hmm. And if we're making investments in modernizing the court electronically, the pandemic kind of forced us to do that. Mm -hmm. We have to build back better by, you know, ensuring that that jury duty is well supported. Um, yeah. In the states, people aren't showing up. They right. just aren't. It's 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 not even just a few people. It's like you know there was a quorum of they were expecting three hundred, and eleven people showed up. <laughs> wow. And you know we've been concerned um, that 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 might be the case here too. Um, so we 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 brought that concern to the the uh, standing committee on finance during COVID nineteen and said, um, you know, we need to be prepared for the fact that that Canadians won't respond to their summons again for very real reasons. Yeah, during the pandemic and post pandemic, because I want to keep my job. I don't want to upset my employer. That's why an entire pillar of our organization is dedicated to workplace um, support and workplace advocacy mm. to um, ensure that we're talking to Canadian employers to say, it's your duty to support jury duty. Um, right. Just as we've supported public health, right? You, you have a duty to support your employee when they receive their summons um, and not pressure them to find a way to get out of it, mm. but support them. Mm -hmm. and maintain their wages and salary and um and also it's there's a duty of care that you have and responsibility you have for when your employee comes back to work especially after being on a traumatic trial well that's uh that's all really great stuff you're doing in fact the cmha thinks so as well we're really <laughs> we're really thrilled to have them as a partner uh, a partner and, and working with us directly on, on one of our programs, uh, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, uh, are, are enormous supporters of our work and they helped me enormously personally. Um, and so I'm, I'm thrilled to be working with them and, and giving back as well. Well, they even declared you one of the top 150 leading Canadians for mental health something I, I don't know what the title is exactly but they're very impressed with you well it was an honor to be included among so many fantastic uh people who are doing been doing incredible work for decades um so i that was a uh, it was a, 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 a surprising honor and I, i'm still deeply grateful for that and you know this, this again it's it, this is about making the system better yeah. So that what happened to me doesn't happen to somebody else. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, I'm thankful for all the work you're doing. And I think it's really great because like, it's, that's something I never would have ever thought of, but at the same time, why was it never thought of? You know, like it seems so obvious what during this conversation that, that these supports should be there and, and things. So it's, it's kind of funny that 
It's just wasn't uh, none of those sports were there for many, many decades. Sadly, I think it's it's partly the the uh, because of jury secrecy, because of the role the jury plays as a silent um, uh, a silent partner, so to speak, not even a partner, but because they're they're they are sworn to secrecy and sworn to silence. Mm. We're good Canadians. When we're told not to talk about something, we don't. Right. We're, <laughs> this is it. Don't do that. Okay. I won't. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, follow the law. You're right. I'll follow the law. And so for literally for decades, people have been walking around with this on their backs and didn't have the opportunity to, to talk about it. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, the letters that we received from, from jurors going to parliament, I mean, some of those jurors had never talked about that with anyone, hadn't talked about it with their spouse. Hmm. So nobody had spoken about it. And, I, you know, I'm not going to take total credit, but, you know, I, I spoke up mm-hmm. and, and that started the movement. And I'm, I'm proud, deeply proud of, of that. Um, and, you know, but, uh, you know, obviously in the U.S., maybe jurors have been vocal for that's the other side of the coin. The jurors there are vocal, but still the system down there is is just as fractured and just as um, uh, just as problematic. Um, yeah. Jury jury pay in the U.S. I mean, in Texas, it's six dollars a day. <laughs> it's it's mind boggling. Um, but but, you know, I think they're. You know, the, the, the ideological battle, you know, it being a duty, yeah. you know, in, in the American vein, in the sense of the word, is now being, um, is now being questioned because of COVID. Because people, you know, how can you expect to pay $6 a day and have people willing to drop their jobs because their jobs aren't protected and, yeah. and come in? Yeah. And... Yeah. And so I think this is, you know, jurisdictions across the world are, are now grappling with this. Ireland, they don't pay. There's no jury pay at all. There's no employee protection either. And in Ireland, again, jurors just aren't coming to court. They're yeah. just not showing up. I'm all about doing my civic duty, but in some way, you know, in a lot of ways, I don't blame them. Like I, I <laughs> it's like, not 1950, right? It's yeah, just, yeah. It's not. It's not it's not Ozzie and Harriet. It's not 1950. It's not, it's a different world where the cost of living is so much more expensive. Um, or, you know, we have bills, we have responsibilities. Um, and, and, you know, jury pay then reflected a simpler time and the honorarium was such that it probably did provide a level of, of support, but it's not doing that role now. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's just, it's not covering your cost of parking. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not a parking voucher. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you've answered all the questions I had on my paper. Is there anything you wanted to add that, that maybe I didn't ask about? No. Well, I listen, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about your experience uh, after uh, after the fact, and <laughs> you know, it's jury duty is a you know again it's a it's a rewarding experience. The majority come through it and and do experience a sense of of uh, fulfillment, and so uh, you know I'm I'm looking forward to you 
hearing what that was like for you. And, <laughs> and hopefully it was positive. And, and again, anyone listening to this who has a summons in their hands, you know, uh, go into court. Uh, it, it is your duty. It's, it's important. It's important that we do this as part of our society. It's, it's, it's an important piece of our democracy. If I was charged of a serious crime, uh, I would want to be judged by a panel of my peers and a, and a panel of my peers who are there unencumbered and are there focusing on the case. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, I, that was a really great conversation. Um, I learned a lot and I was somewhat prepared going into jury duty because of our conversation. And that's something uh, that seems obvious now. Why, is, why wasn't there counseling for, for jurors? They see and hear all types of graphic stuff. Like, what, what took so long? Anyway, thanks again, Mark. And now next episode, uh, I am speaking to Megan Zong. She's a Saskatoon actress and also a playwright. And in September, she had a sold-out run of a show that she wrote called Unmasked. And it was all about uh, her adventures with uh, psychosis. Thank you again for listening. And, uh, yeah, don't forget to share. Spread spread the word about the podcast on Instagram, on Facebook, on the Twitter, whatever you got. All right. See you next episode. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe, rate, and review however you are listening to this podcast. It only takes a moment, and it really helps the show out with getting noticed. This episode has been sponsored by Penny University Bookstore, 3104 13th Avenue. Call 639-571-2186 and check out their online bookstore at pennyu.ca. The Saskatchewan Podcast Network is supported by Conexus. Wellness, however you define it, is achievable. You don't even need to figure it all out by yourself. Talk to Conexus. They'll give you guidance, motivation, and the push you need to reach your goals. They've got you. They're your financial partner and they know you can achieve your very best, your financial best. Prove them right. Start right at Conexus Credit Union. The Saskatchewan Podcast Network is also sponsored by Direct West. Are you a business owner looking for new avenues to promote your business? Direct West digital billboards are a great opportunity to highlight a new product, new promotion, or anything else you'd like your customers to know about. You can get local, expert marketing help for your business at directwest.com. If you are having a mental health crisis, please call the Canadian Crisis Number at 1-833-456-4566. In Saskatchewan, the mobile crisis team in Prince Albert is 306-764-1011. In Regina, it's 306-525-5333. And in Saskatoon, it's 306-933-6200. Don't forget to check out my children's book, Sometimes Daddy Cries. Sometimes Daddy Cries is told through the eyes of a boy whose father suffers from depression. He sees his dad get sad, rest, and even go to the hospital, all while comparing his father's depression to a physical ailment. Available on Amazon.ca. I'll see you next time. This is Todd Redebaum saying, make your beds and take your meds. Bye. Bye.